0: Today is July 22, 2015, and my guest is Summer Brennan, author of The Oyster War, the true story of a small farm, big politics, and the future of wilderness in America. And that is our topic for today. Summer, welcome to Econ Talk.
1: Thanks so much.
0: Now, your book weaves together a lot of fascinating stories about the role of government, environmentalism, the idea of wilderness, community, where our food comes from, and so on. But at the heart of the book is a dispute over whether an oyster company was going to be allowed to operate in the middle of the Point Reyes National Seashore on the coast of California north of San Francisco. So I want to start by talking about the place where that story takes place, the area known as Point Reyes and the National Seashore. Where is it and what is your personal experience of the place?
1: Absolutely. Um, Well, as you said, uh, Point Reyes National Seashore is north of San Francisco on the coast there, and it's about uh, 100 square miles of rolling hills and open pasture land and some forests and ridges and some really beautiful beaches. And I I grew up out there. Um, I was born in the Bay Area and from about the age of four grew up in West Marin, which is the community of these small, unincorporated towns uh, out in that area. Uh, so I grew up right next to Point Reyes National Seashore and was outside in it a lot, uh, camping and going to the beach and hanging out uh, in nature a lot.
0: It's a really, um, it's an extraordinary, physically beautiful place.
1: Oh, yes, it's, it's gorgeous. Um, it's, there was just a, an article I saw recently that was the top, Top ten or top twenty most beautiful unknown places in California, and the top two were were both in Point Reyes. Uh, so it's a great, it's a beautiful place, natural beauty, but um, the the communities near to it are really interesting and wonderful too. There's, there's a, a number of of little towns that have become more popular recently with tourists as well. Um, the great, you know, great food community and a great agricultural community too.
0: Now that we've talked about it on Econ Talk, of course, it's going to be a lot more crowded and less uh, unknown.
1: <laughs> sure. Well, I, I actually uh, I had to laugh. There was I don't remember where it was, but there was there was an article about how actually uh, I think Bodega was the cool place, as if it was like Point Reyes had already become so cool that it was a bit passe. And so you know, some things like really trendy when there's like the you know the <laughs> push back a little bit. So, sure. But yes, this will definitely
0: add. And, uh. Now, try to give the, for those who haven't been there and for those who seriously, if you haven't been there, it's a beautiful place. And I, but I have to add, there are many beautiful places north of uh, San Francisco and south of San Francisco along the coast uh, that are similar in, um, in landscape and in breathtaking beauty. But this is a little less disturbed than some of those, a little, a little, um, it's a little different, and it's a little more disturbed in some ways with human contact. So try to give people a feel for the, what it looks like. what it's, um, it's not just a seashore. There's stuff going on nearby and on the, up to the coast. Uh, there's this unusual mix of, of human activity.
1: Absolutely. Well, what makes it uh, so fascinating, I think, is it does have that mix of, of uh, proximity and remoteness. It's, it's you know about an hour's drive from San Francisco with decent traffic. So it's very accessible, uh, but it does feel very remote and, uh, it gets millions of visitors a year, but it never, it rarely feels crowded. I don't say never, but I, I've, I've never got that sense. Um, maybe, you know, right near the parking lot on one of the beaches at a, you know, high, high day during the summer. Um, but, uh, historically it's been a working landscape for a long time. So there's a very interesting mix of uses. So, uh, about a third of the park. Is taken up with working farmland, um, or I should say, I guess pastureland. It's called the pastoral zone, and there are working uh, dairy farms and cattle ranches there. Uh, there was also a, there's also a coast guard station, um, picturesque lighthouse. There, yes, of course, of course, <laughs> picturesque lighthouse. Um, and it was uh, so there's there's decades of you know over a hundred years of, of history in that in that regard too.
0: So in some sense, it's a uh... With the with the ranches and dairy farming that goes on there, um, it, it's an unusual place because part of it is very wild, and part of it mm-hmm. is less so.
1: Yes, uh, very, and it happens very quickly too. I think is what's interesting about the landscape is you have a lot of different types of of landscapes within a relatively small area uh, in terms of you know these rocky cliffs and beautiful moors that look like something out of Wuthering Heights or something like that. And then you have these very dense forests. Uh, so yeah, so it does, it does change a lot. Um, and, and that there's that mix of, of agriculture and, and wilderness, you know, literally right next to each other.
0: Now, one of the great things about your book is, uh, you learn a lot about oysters and, (laughs) uh, oyster farming, which I had no concept of, uh, most people know what an oyster is. Um, Right. I learned that it has – an oyster has no brain uh, but does have a heart. That's right. Um, and I learned how they are farmed, which is seemingly impossible. So try to give us <laughs> an idea of the history of oyster farming, uh, which is not uh, something most people have much knowledge of. It's called mariculture, if I have that correct. That's right, is that right. Yeah,
1: that's correct. Yeah, mare from the word for sea. Um, yeah, so uh, – for a while in the U.S., uh, oysters were more of a harvested food than a farmed food. Um, you know, the, some of the earliest European settlers, the um, you know the Dutch coming here, found billions of oysters uh, ringing all the islands in New York Harbor, and so they were very plentiful. And for a long time, as I said, it was mostly a harvest operation. Uh, but but mm, Oyster mariculture was born when people realized that, okay, if you took young oysters from this place and and moved them to somewhere else with slightly different water quality, they would do better or they would grow faster or maybe one place was uh, very beneficial for oyster spawning, um, you know breeding and hatching, uh, but they were more flavorful somewhere else, and so they would have that that combination of of, of the oystering, or maybe it's not as drastic as moving their whole location, but just um, moving the oysters around a little bit within a smaller area, or starting them out as little oysters in bags, but then leaving them on a um, you know on a more open and more open area for them to mature. And so there's a lot of different techniques. And what I found fascinating talking to different oyster farms and different oyster farmers, even within the same bay, is that they all had their their different special. Special techniques, which was very
0: interesting. Well, the part that was extraordinary to me is that there aren't any oysters particularly uh, native to the San Francisco Bay Area, and the early no, uh, yeah. <laughs> and, and the early days of oyster eating in the aftermath of the Gold Rush uh, was came from people shipping oysters in barrels across the country and growing them. So, talk about how they did that. Well, that's crazy. It's yeah. bizarre. It's unbelievable.
1: Yeah. That was fascinating to me and it went against everything that I had heard about oyster history in the Bay Area um, and I had, I had no idea I was going to encounter that but I, you know, marched over to the UC Berkeley Bancroft Library to do my 19th century oyster research and uh, I found all these accounts of uh, this man named John Stilwell Morgan who was the I guess, oyster pioneer really at the West Coast and he came out from New York. He was from Staten Island. And he was sent out uh, by one of New York's biggest oyster barons with gear and funding to go r- in 1849 uh, with the first, you know, first rush of 49ers with the gold rush uh, to look for oysters. And uh, he didn't find any. And there's and that's what surprised me uh, is I'd always heard that there were plentiful native oysters in the San Francisco Bay, but he looked everywhere, he didn't see them. And so he spent about 20 years. Working on shipping them down from Washington territory, because a, a couple years into his search in San Francisco Bay area, he found out that they were they were up there in a place that used to be called Shoalwater Bay and is Wallafa Bay now. And so he spent yeah about two decades uh, trying to get the Washington oysters to establish in the bay. And some crops would would work, but. But not a lot. They were very small um, and it was just a lot of hard work. And then in 1869, uh, the, with the, the completion of the Transcontinental Railroad, um, they started shipping out oysters from New York and New Jersey in barrels. And that's when his empire just you know, you know really took off.
0: And he realized – this is the part that's so uh, – it's a combination <laughs> of brilliant and shocking. He realized he could ship a lot more uh, by bringing them as, as babies – uh, infant oysters, whatever you want to call them, oysterettes. Yeah, yeah. And, fat. yeah. and then maturing them in the water of the of around San Francisco, right?
1: Right, and and the interesting thing about the oysters, as I mentioned, with the development of oyster mariculture, is that where the oysters grow up matters a lot for how they you know, everything, their texture and their taste. So he first was shipping them out as grown oysters, as it was normally done. And then he realized it was just too expensive with the freight, so he shipped them out a bit smaller. And then he thought, well, you know, we got—I don't remember what the percentage is off the top of my head right now—but you know, it's okay. So 70% survived. That's not bad. Let's see if we can get them out even younger. And the freight was the same for the barrels. So I think instead of being able to get like 600 oysters per barrel, he would get 20,000 or something. And 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 it was fascinating to me to read about it because. Uh, he was interviewed by uh, Bancroft you know about being this titan of industry and it was a very big deal kind of industry secret in the fact that he did this and and there was all you know notes in the archives about how they couldn't publish that detail and and so there's a um, you know this interview the the result of this interview ended up in a, in a book about about prominent businessmen in San Francisco at that time and that's not that's not in the book
0: and once he got the babies out, the little oysters out here, um, what do you, what did he do? How, how do uh, you so he, how, and, <laughs> and talk about how a modern oyster farm in the Bay Area, what are they doing?
1: Sure, absolutely. Well, it's not that different in a way. Um, so You get the, the little baby oysters and you, they can be called sets. And so there'll be um, a bunch of little tiny baby oysters uh, will adhere to uh, an adult oyster shell or sometimes the shell of another another shellfish and then you put them in the water and, and wait for them to grow and different species of oysters grow different, different rates. Um, as, I, as I wrote about in the book, I, I went out um, and toured some of the beds at Drake's Bay Oyster Farm and those oysters took about 18 months to two years depending maybe less uh, to mature to, to full size uh, that they would sell.
0: But in modern times, and, they're not shipping them on yeah. rail cars across from here. No, New York. no, no. So, what are they, where are they getting the the little ones from?
1: Uh, sure. Well, the different oyster farms do different things. Um, many, so the majority of the oysters grown in California are a Pacific oyster, which is native to Japan. Um, and so, in the early days, those were those were coming in shipments from Japan. But now they they breed them. Uh, some farms in California breed them. Uh, they have them in Oregon. So if, if they try to breed, you know, their, their, or spawn their own, um, new oysters, but, but it doesn't, it doesn't work out or there's an issue with the water and they all die, they can, you know, order them from another farm and they'll get a shipment. Um, I don't, I don't think they come in, you know, big wooden barrels anymore, but, um, but similar to, to Morgan's Day, they'll get the baby oysters from somewhere else or, on their own, and, and this is a stupid question,
0: but, now, but you don't have oh, to, you don't have to feed them
1: <laughs> no well that's the thing um, you have to give them well you have to put them in water that has their food already in it, um, you know, which is algae, so you just yeah, just make sure that the water the water is the kind that they will like that has enough algae for them to to fatten up, but not too much that they that they choke you know
0: and the last I think um Fact to get straight before we move into some of the controversies sure. is that um, <laughs> when we talk about the Drake's Bay Oyster Company, which is the where the dispute uh is the company that gets involved in the dispute, which is right. located in the Point Reyes National Seashore, uh there's no this is just so bizarre. There there's no um place for them to adhere to. There's no Rocky bottom or right. So they're suspended on strings. Is that correct? Do I have that right?
1: Yeah. Um, yes. And how do they do that? So the, the, the oysters, they don't have a foot like, like, um, foot like a muscle has like, a you know, um, muscles have a, uh, I'm not remember the name of the anatomy, a thingy. A thingy. Exactly. <laughs> they, you know, um, so, but oyster, oyster shells will adhere pretty, pretty, solidly to something hard and that's how they stay. And then over, over time oyster reefs build up where you know, the old deceased oysters kind of become part of the hard substrate that the new oysters can adhere to. So baby, baby oysters will, um, when they're first born, they're mobile and they kind of swim around the water and then up, their exterior will start to calcify. And so once that happens, they will kind of settle to the bottom or settle onto some hard surface and attach and grow there. And they will stay growing there unless you take them off and move them. Um, so the so at some oyster farms, they start with a little swimming larva and they'll um, have them attached to either pieces of shell uh, or other oysters. Or I've seen them do it with rods, so I have like a long plastic or metal rod and the baby oysters will all adhere to that and start to grow. And then when they get a bit bigger, they, you know, they chip them off without harming them and then they can move them somewhere else. And so they can put them in a bag, uh, for them to, so that they're more mobile in the water. So they can put them in one part of the bay and they can grow for a while there and then they can move them to somewhere else.
0: And I think that that makes sense. Yeah. And I think the last piece to understand is that, uh, the action in this story takes place in what's called uh Drake's I don't know how to pronounce it is it Estero or Estero you,
1: you know join the club um it's uh I always
0: say Estero but I've heard both So I'm going a- to yeah. follow you so in Drake's Drake's Estero is a an estuary an inlet uh from inside Drake's Bay Drake's Bay is a That's massive right. massive uh sheltered bay almost like an invert an inverted cape cod you can find that on a map uh folks sure and then up inside uh up up the estuary is is where the oysters are growing because that way you don't have storms and things that are going to take all your your stock and send them send it everywhere you can find them in the morning when you need them when you need right. to pick them right
1: yes um and the, i guess for for people to visualize um Drake's estu- estro, estro, to See, I can't even. I can't even <laughs> no, it's but, tricky. <laughs> the estuary, um, it's it's sort of shaped like a like a wonky, wrinkly glove, a little bit, in the sense that it's got five main sort of fingers that that kind of reach out into the land. Um, I heard somebody say it looked to them like a chicken foot, but I'm going to go with glove. Um, so. That, that's sort of the, sh- the shape of it, and it is sheltered. And, and oysters are often grown uh, in estuaries or in bays near where a river feeds in. Uh, they they like brackish water, and uh, when there's a little bit of fresh water getting into the oyster, sometimes they, they'll have a sweeter taste, which a lot of people like. So that's the best environment for oyster growing.
0: So now let's move to the controversy. and, and- Okay. On the surface, um, this is a very small story. It's about 31 workers living in – many of them living in not fancy shacks or cabins or – Yeah, very uh, modest. uh, uh, Near the water, uh, growing Mm -hmm. these oysters, harvesting these oysters. It's a very small operation. It's hard Mm -hmm. to imagine that this is going to become a national story that's going to get people really riled up. But it, right. but it does, and oh, that's uh, a good chunk of the book. So try to give us a thumbnail of what the fight was about and, um, and what happened. It's sure. a thumbnail because obviously we could, we could spend the rest of time just on this, but give us just the overview.
1: Well, the basic, the succinct overview is that um, there was this oyster farm in the estuary – on and off since the 30s with different ownerships, but one ownership from the 50s until uh, 2004. And then uh, a cattle rancher from next door bought the oyster farm and the National Park Service said that the lease would be terminating in 2012 and the new owners did not want the lease to terminate and so there was a big battle over that and if they could extend it and uh, why they would or why they wouldn 't, and whether the farm was harming the estuary or not or benefiting the estuary or not, and since the reasoning for evicting the oyster farm was that the area wasn 't just in a national park but a wilderness area, there was a question of what is wilderness and what belongs in wilderness, and what does that really mean?
0: yeah, I want to talk about that, but one one I think sure. det- one detail we got to mention is that. Between the establishment of this farm in 19, in the 30s, 1962 is, is, the pl- is the time when the Point Reyes National Seashore Act gets in place. And yeah. I'm going to read the line that you quoted there. It says, the government may not acquire land in the pastoral zone, which you mentioned before where the dairy farmers mm-hmm. are and the ranchers. The government may not, may not acquire land in the pastoral zone without the consent of the owner so long as it remains in its natural state – or is used exclusively for ranching and dairying purposes. And of course, yes. that description grandfathered in essentially the farmers in the area if they were farming cows, right. <laughs> but it right. left unspecified oysters, except that at some point it said that oyster, when, when do we get the, the key statement that the lease expires in 2012, the opportunity sure. to use that land?
1: Forestry. Absolutely. Well, and, and the, the passage that you're referring to was talking about a time when they were discussing um, uh, property condemnation. And so these the landowners, the, the different ranching families, like um, I as you know write about in the book. Um, there was a question of whether they were just going to be informed, hey, here's the money you have to move, um, you know, based on government appraisal.
0: The equivalent, the equivalent was, of eminent domain.
1: Exactly. And so it was decided that they couldn't do that, um, that the ranchers had to consent. Um, So, and they did. Um, So the ranching, the ranchers decided that they would sell their land um, to the government. And the, and, you know, that was all getting worked out in the 60s. And um, then in 19, so that, you know, the parks created in 62. um, And the oyster farm that was in existence was called the Johnson oyster company and he only had a few acres so you know these ranching ranching guys had you know hundreds of acres and lots of land uh really valuable land and uh charlie johnson just just had a few next to the estuary because he didn't own the estuary he just had uh you know leases to to farm oysters there so he sold in uh in 1972 and at that time he signed a lease which had a paragraph um that said, you know, there, gosh, where is, where's the language? I'm sure I have it here somewhere, but, oh, um, but, but it's okay. But basically, you know, that, that it may be renewed, um, and that that was, it was a 40 year lease, so 2012. Uh, so it could be renewed, you know, depending park policies in place at the time, basically. Um, and that it was a terminable lease, uh, but that they couldn't terminate it without compensating them, basically. So that, that happened in 1972. And then, but four years later, The Point Reyes Wilderness Act happened and that designated uh, 33,000 acres of the park to be a wilderness area which has different restrictions than just a national park. So that's sort of where the tricky part came in for a lot of people is whereas it's it's, um, relatively common to have commerce and private business and agriculture in a park a uh, wilderness area is sort of a different story. And and a lot of people had very different opinions about, about how that should get worked out. But
0: in, in many ways, that's a legal question about mm-hmm. what the rules of the game are once the government designates it as a – reasonable people can argue about whether this plot of land or that plot of land should be wilderness or not, run by the government or not, et cetera. But right. I think what's fascinating to me about this case, and you uh, you reflect on it – Often, as you as you write about it, and you write about it very eloquently. What's fascinating about the case is that on the surface, I mean, that's a reasonable argument. You know, should should we have wilderness areas? Who should administer them? What should be the rules within them? Uh, that, those are interesting policy questions. People disagree about them, but that's fine. That isn't what this turned out to be about in the public sphere. In the public sphere, this the way I read your book, and I want to get your reaction to this, in the public sphere, the debate was about whether this was fair because yeah. poor Mr. Uh, – so in, in 19, you said it, in 1972, mm. uh, Mr. Johnson signs a, uh, a, a deal with the, with the federal government that says he has used the land for 40 years to farm right. oysters. And after that, it, the lease runs out. It may not or may be renewed. In the meanwhile, uh, it gets declared a wilderness, which means it's probably not going to be renewed. And mm-hmm. he runs out of money, or doesn't want to do this anymore. And in 2004, he sells it to another key player, which is Kevin. How do you pronounce his name? Uh, Lunny. Lunny. So the, the mm-hmm. Lunnies own this farm. They rename it the Drake Bay Drake Bay Oyster Company, and uh, and that's Francis, Sir Francis Drake, by the way. So that area is named after because it's <laughs> a beautiful story. You talk about it. It's really nice about the Golden Hind being anchored offshore. I really like that. Yeah. So. Yeah. Kevin Lonnie buys this property with the knowledge that he really only has a guarantee of 8 years. Right. And I guess what the dispute is about and I think people who might disagree with your book mm-hmm. you, you claim otherwise, but the dispute is about is that the case. Is it right. In other words, if I say to you, uh you're buying this for me and I, you know I've got to tell you you've only got it for 8 years. Okay, well that's life. Uh, maybe it'll be renewed, maybe it won't be. But you suggest that time and time again when Lunny tried to see if it could be renewed, the government said no.
1: You can yeah. disagree
0: with that or not. You could argue it should have been renewed. You could argue that it shouldn't be wilderness. But there's no deception. And I think what, when, when this reached a, a, a level of controversy, what happened is that people felt that, that Lunny had been treated unfairly. And yet I would say your bottom line is no, he just didn't get what he wanted.
1: It's so hard because you know I was just um, I was just looking at some photographs of the, the oyster farm the other day, and it was such an emotional issue, and I really, I really feel for everybody that was involved. I know that they cared so much about the farm and all the workers who, you know while, while Drake's Bay Oyster Company only existed starting in 2005, many people had worked there for decades. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I feel like it almost sounds callous to say, well, they just didn't get what they wanted. I think it's just that their vision of what was possible wasn't really in line with what they were being told. And Um, they didn't want to hear it. Yeah. And then I guess – Right. I mean, yeah, that was one of the biggest shocks for me actually in my research because I had the impression that there was something more solid there in terms of uh, what they had to work with, um, that there had been some promise of – Renewal or suggestion of renewal or or something and uh, I've really tried to find it. I really did and I just uh, I just couldn't find anything and I appealed I appealed to Drake Bay. I appealed to their legal team um, And pretty much anyone I could think of Uh, but but I I didn't I couldn't find anything
0: So that's the negative on the Lunny side the negative on the government side again as the reader of your book is the following Uh, At various times in this debate over whether maybe we should – maybe the government should give them a lease extending past 2012. It appears that government science uh, was either in error or um, uh, strategically manipulated to make the case that oysters weren't good for the bay – Oysters weren't good for the environment. Oysters were damaging the wilderness. And I think it's a sobering account no matter which side of the political debate you're on, whether you're worried about the encroachment of humanity into wilderness areas or vice versa. You're worried that government's too restrictive about the uses of private property in various settings. Uh, Neither side comes across so attractively in the book, to be honest. Is that a fair reading?
1: I think so. Um, That was – my impression um, that I, I feel that I, you know, I understood, or I tried very, a lot, I, I tried very hard to understand the, the motives of everyone involved and, and to sort of, you know, try to put myself in somebody else's shoes and think, okay, you, you know, to be empathetic. But, um, but yeah, I, I would, I would agree with that characterization that, that, that neither, nobody came out of this, you know, without any, any mud on their shoes, I guess,
0: is a way to put it. Very appropriate for an oyster story. Um, right, exactly. So I'm going to yeah. so read a quote from the book, um, which um, I think uh, adds another dimension that we haven't talked about yet. You can you can elaborate on it. Uh, sure. Here's the quote. The oyster feud was a strange political dispute in that both sides seemed to be liberal Democrats. Liberal Democrats who supported organic, sustainable farming on the one side and liberal Democrats who supported wilderness on the other Many said that they supported both but had to come down on a particular side for one reason or another. And, and of course, that's the end of the quote. But, of course, there were other – there side issues about, uh, again, how much wilderness there should be and what should be the human footprint, et cetera, et cetera. But to, what's – one of the fascinating aspects of the story is that it, it, it was a dispute between the romance of local food, which the oysters were providing to local restaurants, versus uh, – People who wanted to hike in a pristine place,
1: mhm, yeah, or well, kayak, I guess, because it's it is water so, <laughs> um but yes um no that's 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 true, um, and I think that's maybe part of why it got a lot of attention, I think there's a number of reasons why that it why it got that kind of attention but but I think that was one is is people were confused by you you know, somebody that would normally look at a dispute and say, Oh, okay, so the Sierra Club is on this side of the dispute and I like the Sierra Club, so I'm gonna be on that side too. But then they'd look and they'd see that <laughs> Michael Pollan, the food writer, was on the other side and that would be confusing. And think, wait a minute, that's these are all people, you know, I whose values align with mine. So what is it about this case that's splitting it? And so I think that was something that was was unusual for a lot of people in the Bay Area anyway, is that it sort of it was it was confusing in that sense. It wasn't easy for people to sort of figure out, you know,
0: who to who to support, who to root for. Very consistent with the economics uh, central idea. One of the central ideas of economics: there are no solutions, only trade-offs. And here was a case <laughs> where the cost somebody was going to, have to pay a cost. It just was a question of who, and there's no easy answer. I think for people who wanted to come down on the quote right side.
1: Right, right, and it wasn't entirely liberal Democrats, too. I mean. Um, you know, I I believe the Drake Bay company owners, identify as Republican, and there were others. So, you know, there's. I, I don't want to overly oversimplify it, and that it was only Democrats involved. No, um, I know it, but
0: I knew, we know what you but, meant.
1: But exactly, yes, that was that was an unusual, or I don't know if it's really that unusual, but something that was of note to yeah. to some
0: reporters. And I guess uh, it gets very ugly in parts. Uh, people yeah. uh, friendships get, I'm sure, ruined and ended over this dispute. Um, I found it interesting that nobody – as far as I know, nobody gets killed. Um, yes. There's no uh, – the yes. only shooting takes <laughs> place is with a camera, which is an embarrassing episode in the book that you recount um, oh, of yes. somebody video trying to videotape surreptitious activity or inappropriate activity by the oyster boats and its effect on seals. That's, yeah, mm-hmm. that's, kind of, that's an amusing um, comedy of errors really. But this yeah. is the kind of dispute in a different part of the country. I think people would have been killed, uh, but at least there were no deaths here.
1: Yeah. Well, I, um, yeah, thank goodness. Um, you know, when I was, yeah, I shouldn't even say it. When, when I was thinking of writing this book and speaking to people about it and publishing, somebody said, well, you know, no one's been killed yet, but there's still time. I was like, oh God, I know all the people don't say that. It's horrible. Um, but no, I mean, I had reporters say to me that, you know, before this had wrapped up, uh, that they expected militia groups to show up and that guns would come out. And I think, I think you're right. Had it been somewhere else, um, that may have happened. I think they were referencing the, you know, the Bundy Bundy Ranch oh, situation. And the,
0: the Marin area is not known for its hunters, which um, this, probably- the gun ownership in that area, r- part of the country, is relatively low compared to others.
1: It is. Uh, there's a real stigma to hunting for a, a large uh, amount of population in the Bay Area, which I talk about a little bit in the yeah. book. As you, um, yeah. yeah.
0: So let's just finish the story, and then we'll talk a little bit about the okay, okay. consequences. So the end of the story is that 2012 comes along, the permit is not extended, and the Lunnies right. go to court. What happens then?
1: Uh, yeah, so they, they sue the federal government, um, you know, in a nutshell, basically just accusing them of capricious action, and, uh, but they are, they are denied, and they try to take it to the Supreme Court, and that is ultimately also not taken up. So they lose their battle and there's a settlement about what they need to do to clean up and come, you know, I guess spoilers, but, uh, <laughs> you know, at the end of 2014, they had to leave. And so they closed down the farm and, and it's no more. And now the park is working to clean up, clean up the area where the farm was.
0: And the oysters some of the, I, I hate some, some of the oysters were not harvested. I assume they were
1: right. Yeah. They talk planting. about that. So late date. I don't know when was the last planting was. I think it was out of a, you know, a very, uh, it's really incredible optimism um, on on the part of of Drake's Bay uh, to keep planting and and you know, the, I mean, their conviction was was really something to to be admired in a lot of ways because um, they just definitely felt like they were in the right and that they were going to keep fighting until they got what they wanted. Um, but so the the oysters were were planted pretty late in the game, so there was a lot of oysters that went to waste, and a lot of oysters that uh, were still in the estuary uh, by the time the farm moved out. Uh, and there's probably still some out there, um, but uh, they you know put out warnings that there shouldn't be shouldn't be consumed. I, I don't know; they may have gotten them all by now, but there was many many still there.
0: Yeah. Uh, I, did, did they have any predators, by the way? They must. oysters. Yeah, who eats oysters? Uh, Well, um,
1: besides us. uh, Yeah, besides us, uh, raccoons eat oysters. Um, I think... um, Otters?
0: Pardon? Do otters eat oysters? I feel like they
1: Uh, do. uh, Otters probably do. There aren't many sea otters around Drake's Bay, and I don't think there have been river otters in the estuary, although they are returning to the area and some sea otters too. Uh, But stingrays actually tended to be the biggest predator... Are the, the the biggest problematic predator for oyster farmers in the Bay Area um, is the is stingrays that get to them, and then the oyster drills, which aren't native to the area, that were introduced with the shipments, you know, in the 19th century.
0: Well, The idea uh, of of encountering a stingray in one of the fingers of that glove is a pretty frightening thought in uh, that shallow water. Yeah, and,
1: yeah, yeah uh, there's fewer <laughs> of them. I mean, there's great there's great stories from some of the old old timers in the in West Marin of of um, you know they would set up fences to keep the stingrays out from around uh you know oysters and and, and different uh shellfish that they were growing in the area
0: let's let's talk so, about wilderness and you have a lot of thoughtful okay. things to say about it i one of the um fascinating aspects of course is that as you as you put it at one point uh it's a lovely idea that many people uh care about deeply that that the land should be returned to its wild state but as you asked right. Wild as of when? Mm-hmm. Because what right. is it? And, and talk about the Native American population and their role in that.
1: Sure. Um, well, the there was a, a number of different uh, Native tribes living in the Bay Area prior to the arrival uh, by Europeans. Um, someone uh, has said that, you know, it's, been, it's been said that actually it was one of the most populous areas in the Americas outside of the Aztec cities. Um, I wasn't able to confirm that but it's an interesting thought and considering how temperate the area is, I wouldn't be surprised. Um, So there was a number of tribes living there um, and from everything that I've read and heard, they were very involved in managing the landscape and even managing animal populations to a degree. They hunted the tule elk and they would burn areas of brush to increase pastureland for the elk, and the elk like to eat the fresh young um, plants that grow up after a, a controlled burn. So, so they had a very, you know, intimate relationship with with the land. So the native populations managed the land very closely, as I said. And uh, but there was a lot of changes that happened as soon as the Europeans arrived. Uh, as I write, many of the the grasses that you see in California in general, and in the Bay Area, are not native grasses. Um, even these iconic, like grasses that you see that turn this golden color in the in the summer, um, you know, they weren't they weren't there 300 years ago. Uh, this is Mediterranean grass that came with the Spanish cattle, and you know, later with other animals. So there's just been a lot of change. I mean, obviously, there used to be bears and all kinds of different predators. That have moved out. Uh, Tule elk were absent from the plant raised area for about 100 years uh, before being reintroduced. So a lot has changed. So basically, when you're talking about a wild place or an original wild place, it's interesting because you know an ecosystem is always in flux, and people talk about the balance of an ecosystem, but actually, you know, all species, plants and animals are always vying for uh, survival and ascendancy to a degree and if anyone could become more, you know, more productive and, and, and more successful even to a detrimental degree, you know, they would they would do so. There's not a lot of awareness on the part of <laughs> a tule elk, you know, that it's going to eat out all of its own habitat. Um, there was recently a population crash in the in the elk out in Point Reyes actually, um, probably because of the drought but, you know, so there's... The, things change over time so it it is an interesting question of how far to an original wilderness can you get and what does that even really mean and does it matter and what about wilderness matters and and i think that that's sort of a question that's in flux now of what is the core of wilderness so that we can can preserve it and figure out what belongs there and what doesn't
0: what's interesting to me and, and by the way we did an episode on this issue of balance of nature with uh, Daniel Botkin uh, ages ago, and he kind of talked 2007, Ah. and we'll put a link up to it. But um, Because I do think we have a certain um, false image of nature's uh, equilibria, and it's uh, good to keep the truth in mind, I think. But we have a romance about about wildness and wilderness that is in some sense inherently um, impossible to implement. And as a person who loves that golden grass, and I have taken – Hundreds and hundreds of photographs of that uh, landscape in different light in the Stinson Beach, Mount Tamalpais area, in Muir Beach, and uh, all up and down the coast. I love that landscape. I think it's absolutely gorgeous. And now you've you've ruined it for me. You've told me it's <laughs> Sorry. it came with Spanish cows defecating seeds not all from. Oh, <laughs> not
1: native. <but> yeah, <laughs> and and, and a lo- I guess. A lot of it.
0: So, but, yeah. so what I was going to say is that I, you know I, there's something actually very beautiful about that. Um, yeah. That 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 the human desire for like for exploration has its made its mark on that landscape uh, and brought something wild from or not so whatever you want to call it from the Mediterranean all the way thousands and thousands of miles. I, maybe I think maybe I'll appreciate it even more now. But it, yeah. it does make the point that attempts to recreate the Garden of Eden are in many ways, a fool's game and and really a form, to me, of self-deception. We we want our wilderness, and and that could be a white person's explorer wilderness uh, from 1500 or a Native American wilderness from a different time, and we should be honest and realistic about it. Right. I think
1: it's it's a question – I mean I'm uh – I have very romantic sensibilities, which I'm sure is apparent in the book. Yep, very um, enjoyable. But but even, love that part. Even, oh, um, but even so, I think when it when it comes to thinking about wilderness, I think I'm more of a realist, or I guess a functionalist, than a romantic. In that, I think what matters. It, it matters less the technicality of native or non-native or how long something has been there or not. And, and that's why I think I, I write this that one of the central issues of this story across the board was one of belonging of what belongs where and who and why and who decides. And that can be an oyster farm or a kind of grass. And sometimes something's just too late and, you know, the grass is... The California grasslands have reached a new equilibrium. And, you know, they, they have their own system going, so nobody's going to go and like rip up all of the the non-native oat grasses in, in California. Um, I, I've never met anyone that wants to. Um, so you kind of have to, sometimes when somebody says, well, just because something's non-native, we should take it out, there's foxgloves there's growing in Point Race national seashore, which are not native, um, and I happen to like that flower a lot. Uh, hmm. You know, somebody might make an argument that because it's non-native, it doesn't belong there. Um, but you could also say, well, it's not, it's not hurting anyone. And, you know, it's growing right next to grass. It's also technically not native. And I live near there and I'm not native to this part of the world. So, I mean, I am, but you know, not ethnically. So, yeah, it's important.
0: So I'm going to use an uh, an image I've used probably way too much in the last few episodes. I hope listeners aren't tired of it, but we talked uh, going back a few episodes ago and have revisited this idea that it's hard to create a prairie. That you might know what is in a prairie, but you can't just take all the ingredients and plant them all and get a prairie. Certain things will dominate at the wrong pace and end up with something very different. And I think the implication for that of that example for this story is that if you eliminated the non-native grasses, uh, you're not going to necessarily be able to recreate what California looked like 10,000 years ago or even 500 years ago or 600 years ago when Drake showed up because you don't have the right recipe. You don't know how to get there from here. And so inherently, you have to be doing something that's partial, that's imperfect that has to accept the fact that we can't go back to that Garden of Eden, wherever you want to date it.
1: Sure, and, and sometimes I mean, um, people do experiments with either rewilding or with um, native plant restoration that are successful. Um, so it just it kind of depends on the the instance and the scale too. And and I think that there's there's just room for for both. And I think what's interesting about you know, when you have scientists working in space, whether it's because it's a national park or what have you, um, you know, I think I mentioned in Point Reyes there was all this uh, be- European beach grass or uh, continental beach grass growing, and and there's an area that they they pulled out large tracts of it, and a lot of local people kind of just rolled their eyes like, oh, why? Like, what's the point? It looks nice, you know. We're used to it. It's been there for over 100 years. Like, leave it be. Um, but when I did go out and see the spot that they had done this restoration, and it was really interesting because all these new little plant ecosystems had had grown back. So, you know, I, again, you're not going to go and re landscape all of California, but it it is interesting to see little little bits. So, I mean,
0: I could talk for hours
1: about all this stuff. So I, I, I don't get me started on rewilding. um well, I'm to get projects.
0: I'm <laughs> going well, to mention one other thing though, because I think it's okay. important, which is that. Um, the government responds to political pressure. It responds to the voices of of voters, of lobbyists, of money, of all kinds of compl- – in all kinds of complicated ways. And so even if you and I were very into rewilding and thought that the right way to keep the Thule elk population when it was too large, mm-hmm. the right way to, to limit it is to reintroduce bears into the area right. – the political forces are just not going to allow that. Just like in, right. uh, you know, it took uh, about a hundred—I think I got this right—maybe a hundred years or so to reintroduce wolves back into Yellowstone. They had been removed mm-hmm. really for political reasons because people were scared of them. Uh, they right. were decimate—not decimating—but they kept the uh, the elk population down. And people like looking at elk; it gives them a sense of right. wilderness that's safe. <laughs> And so right? I've always yeah. hated that Yellowstone was something of an amusement park masquerading as a as a wilderness because sure. of that. And I'm glad that the wolves are back, and I, maybe we should introduce bear back into Point Reyes, but it's unlikely to happen just for political reasons. I think reasons. the
1: ranchers would have a problem with that. Yes, they would. <laughs> <laughs> I mean they, they, they have complaints with the elk. I think that grizzly bears would probably have a, a little buffet <laughs> with the cows. But yes um, – <laughs> No, for, but that's not the only reason. Yeah, that's the tricky thing, you know, when when so much of the world is tamed that the parts we reserved to be wild or quote unquote wild, um, it's not so easy. To, you can't just say, okay, grizzly bears, stay over there and do your thing and that's it. And that's like the nature of something being wild is it doesn't work like that. So hence there's all kinds of fascinating conflicts that spring up.
0: And there's a population challenge. You can't have three of them. You probably need 30. And when you have 30, they're going right. to do things you don't like. And, right. um
1: But then, you, yeah, then you have prey animals, though, that have evolved to be uh, very productive because they, uh, you know, were everybody's food. So, hmm. I mean, there's been a lot of issues with the tule elk and, and other, other types of, um, you know, large game in point raise with overpopulation because there aren't predators. But – there's no hunting, so it's you know what do you do?
0: And every once in a while we have a, a sanctioned hunt where a bunch of them get killed for just to try to limit that that those impacts, right?
1: Some places, yeah. In, in Point rays that is still an, an unsolved
0: question. Well, the part what you're right about the deer in there, um, which is another yes. ungulate of the region for a long time, um, mm-hmm. is really very beautiful and, and encourage people to. Encourage people to read the book for a lot of reasons, but one of them is to yeah. read about the white deer, and uh, mm-hmm. it's really um, special. I, I want to talk about the elusive nature of truth. Um, okay. You came into this, and I, I, I'm gonna. I want to hear your perspective, and I'll give you mine as a reader of your book. So you came into this somewhat sympathetic to the Drake Bay Oyster Company, at least that's what you say. Yeah. And yeah. you spend way too many hours trying to figure out what really happened and who said what and uh, it's, it's a detective novel in some dimension, and you, yeah. come, and you come to a conclusion, and I suspect um, – and it comes – you come across as incredibly reasonable, as a truth seeker. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's, a, it's inspiring in many ways, and yet I assume there are going to be a lot of people who are going to hate your book, and they're going to say, oh, yeah. she, she missed the story. She didn't – she lied. She slanted it toward the, the park service, toward the whatever,
1: the environmental mm-hmm.
0: story. Um, what are your thoughts on that?
1: Well, I certainly didn't lie. I mean, if I've, you know, if I've, if I put anything in there that doesn't turn out to be true, um, we'll just correct it. Um, you know, I have all my sources, and there is a bibliography at the end of the book, um, and I did my best to fact check and someone else fact check. So we did what we could. Um, and you know, um, this story was huge, and there were so many wormholes to fall into. And, um, you know, towards the end when I was writing this, I read this book um, by Eula Biss called On Immunity, uh, which is another controversial topic about um, vaccination and different things. But at this one point, she writes about how in her research, um, she felt like Alice in Wonderland falling <clears throat> through this shaft of, like, books on all sides, you know, more than she could ever, more than she could ever read. And... Um, and, you know, one person, you know, she finds, uh, you know, different sources and one, I think this is this is from Alice in Wonderland, so this is appropriate for a 10-year-old, but, you know, one source says, drink me, and another says, eat me, and another says this. And, you know, a- after a point um, when there's so many different perspectives, and this is, I think what I say is that I had to say, okay, this is the best I could do for the time that I allotted to this story, and everything else I have to just kind of walk away. And I I do feel confident that I got the core of the story right. I know people will disagree with me, um, especially about the science stuff. And there's, there's parts that I could have added, you know, four extra chapters on. And, um,
0: but, uh, I think you made the right choice there.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, it's a book, I didn't want it to be too long. It's not an encyclopedia. And I think especially people that were insiders to this, Um, will surely be outraged over one thing or another, just in the sense of, oh, but she didn't write about this part of the story, or she didn't write about this. And I, and I do say that. I say that there's lots that I, I left out. Um, there's things that I left out that would have made both sides look better and worse. Um, and, but in the end, I think that I tried to be, you know, I tried to be fair and representative. And, you know, and it isn't a secret, um, in, in the end, I was, I did not get a final interview with, uh, the Drake's Day Oyster people uh, that I wanted. Um, they didn't respond to any of my requests at the end. And so that's, if anything's missing, I think it, it is that piece because I would have liked to get a more individualized take. Um, what I had to settle for was what they said on public record to, you know, other media, and they were very vocal about it. So so that's,
0: um, well, that's yeah. I, I, <laughs> I mean, you know, I, yeah, I it, was, mean t- it was such an... Yeah. <laughs> I, didn't mean to accuse, I didn't mean to accuse you of dishonesty. I don't. Oh no, it's
1: okay. I, I know people say that. Well, they I mean, will.
0: But but okay. what I meant, what I meant was that this is such a complicated story, and do a beautiful job giving it a narrative arc. Right. And Inevitably, as you say, you have to leave some things out that that might have shaded one's feelings as a reader toward one side or the other. And sure. yet, and yet. Um, what you gave to me as a reader was that enough to make what appears to be a decision about mm-hmm. the fairness of it. Again, whether it's a – whether it's good public policy or not, it's a whole separate question. That's not what the right. book's about. Uh, you know, we all have, have preferences on that, and 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 mine, by the way, are, are sympathetic to the idea. Although I, I would, I wish there were private wilderness, and there is some uh, mm-hmm. national parks. Are one are one of the few things the governments do that I happen to at least enjoy and feel I'm getting some of my money's worth. So, <laughs> so, so for me, right, right. As, as a big private property guy, uh, I'm okay with the fact that these people didn't get to use this land. I, you know, maybe it would have been better. It's hard to know if it's really not damaging anything. But I right. don't have any romance about oystering on Drake's on Drake Bay, Drake's Bay. Right. Um So to me, this is just a non. I, I can't get outraged about it now, but partly it's because yeah. I read about it from you. So I'm wondering sure. if I'd read about it – I did some, I read some other stories about it preparing for the interview. But I'm wondering could, could someone have constructed a narrative that had a different emotional appeal? Uh, it's, it's just an interesting question. It's not a – I don't yeah. know if there's an I mean, I,
1: you know, I think in general um, for a lot of the other narratives, um, because the park employees were not permitted – until it was over to talk about their involvement at all um, the personal element I think was missing so you know one of the main characters in the book is Sarah Allen the scientist whose work got called into question and um, so I think that you know I, I made attempts to talk to everyone involved individually um, and so I think that I I think maybe one of the reasons why you get that impression from the book is there's a little bit more of a humanizing aspect to a side of it that you didn't see as much of. Um, But I don't know. I mean, I think also I had to get some perspective on it and when you're in the middle of it and you're hanging out with people who are so stressed out about losing their business and they're crying and their children are crying, I mean, you just get so wrapped up in it emotionally and it's, it's hard not to because this was such a big deal. And I think for a lot of people in the area, it was you know, it was something, there was something symbolic about it too. I mean, they care about their neighbors and they care about the community, but I think there was this other sort of, I don't know, like a subconscious anxiety about encroachment um, from outsiders and that the, you know, um, local people who used the land were being replaced by tourists who just wanted it for recreation. And so I think there was something, because that was happening to a lot of people. People were being priced out of places that they'd grown up. Um, you know, a lot of rentals where normally you know a young family might live it was being put on airbnb instead and and I've never actually heard anyone say this, but I feel like it's not an accident that that this dispute became such a big deal at a time when the the community was changing so drastically from the one that I grew up in, which was much much mellower, more kind of hidden to um you know, uh, the demographics are changing. I guess. Yeah. Anyway, well, it's um, more
0: of a it's more of a. It's more upscale than it was. To be just simple about it, sure. I think, Right. It's, and
1: yeah, and people are getting priced out, and so there's just worry about that. Like it, you know. I think I use the word gentrification in the book. It's a bit. It's not like an urban neighborhood in the same way, but there's this sense of, you know, people are excited about the attention. Some people are 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 having very successful businesses because of it, but it's it's a you know it's a two sided it's a two sided thing so um no, I mean, you know, I think there's many reasons to be very sympathetic to the oyster farm, but I think what did give me a bit of distance in the end was just trying to you know lay out the arguments in its favor and investigate them as best i could and um and in the end, it seemed to me that the correct decision was made, even though it was a difficult one and maybe heartbreaking one for many people.
0: Um, You know, and and I, and yeah. I I wouldn't go that as as someone with a different perspective, I wouldn't, I wouldn't know whether there was the right decision, (laughs) Right, but I didn't think it was an unfair decision, which is again, I think what really motivated so much of the dispute. I have no uh, doubt that private owners of land are often better stewards of that land than, than, bureaucrats or if you want to make it a little more romantic park rangers i think sure there, there are people who take care of their land and and let it revert to wilderness and there's i should mention there's a glorious prairie wilderness project going on in the midwest uh, that i'll put a link up to that is you know it's a private conservancy it's not a it's not a government national park and i'm so i'm a big fan of right. that i just mm-hmm. it's hard for me to get excited about uh oystering as a way of stewardship of the land and it's just not there it's just mm-hmm. yeah it's just a question of um it's for me that's why t- as a reader it came down to fairness i like you i assumed yeah. i was going to be sympathetic to the oyster company by the time right. the book was over mm, i felt bad for them like as you do yeah but yeah. i don't think there was an injustice here there may be a and i don't think there's a particularly big policy error either while we're at it but uh, right, it's, a small, right. it's a small issue, um, and I think it's lovely that there's still some dairy farms there, And right? There are, there are still some, right? Oh,
1: yes. I mean, there's, there's um, you know, uh, a few have closed over the years, but there are uh, there definitely are still many of the dairy farms still functioning with the same families that owned them, you know, 100 years ago. And one of the positive things to come out of this is uh, the, the Department of the Interior has expressed stronger commitment to maintaining those long term because they're they also function on leases and short leases at that some of them were on just five year leases that we're renewing um, but they're not in the wilderness area so it's a different it's a different issue and so I think some of them are getting 20 year leases now and actually the latest I heard is that uh, Drake's Bay oyster company is opening a new oyster farm somewhere else
0: right there's lots of land nearby that's not in the wilderness part of the Area, they, there are yes, there oyster companies bay. around the corner.
1: Exactly, there's oyster companies. There's another bay, a 15 minute drive away, and there's uh, I think at least three, three or four oyster companies in that bay. I don't know if there's space for them. Um, I was talking on Twitter with one of their someone who has volunteered uh, communications work for them over the years, and you know she was saying that. She couldn't tell me exactly where yet because it wasn't, you know, 100% nailed down, but they've ordered a bunch of supplies from China for some new techniques. So they've got, they've got stuff in the works and, you know, um, and that actually just got out about the last couple of weeks. So that didn't make it into the book, but so it seems that there will be a Drake's Bay Oyster Company, uh, just not in Drake's Sistero.
0: Let's close with your, um, personal experience. You, you talk about uh, you've talked about here the challenges of listening to people cry about the, what's going on in their lives, and it, I'm sure it was a, it was an incredible experience to write this book and do the interviews and do the research. Um, and if all goes as planned, this this interview is coming out the day before your book is to be published, yeah. um, and you're going to get a set of reactions um, uh, all over again. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on that? I assume some people are going to love your book and others not so much. Um, yeah. And what does that mean for you as someone who wants to go back there, I'm sure. And from, you know, and enjoy sure. that, that area.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm from there, um, you know, but family members still live there. Um, as I say in the book, you know, my stepdad is one of the librarians in Point Reyes. So I, I've got roots and family and I'll be back. And and, you know, I think the thing to remember is that there are people that in the community that are very vocal about this and care a lot. And there's people that don't care so much at all. And people that somehow magically have not even really heard of it or seen these signs around about it and don't really know what it is and don't really care. Um, so you talk about the community and there's a lot of, there's you know, they're small, but, but there's a lot of people in the community who have other things going on. So I'm not worried about... You know, the community per se I mean with the story um, I did my best to tell you know the truest version of the story that I could and I and I wanted it to be a, a you know a compassionate take on it um, that was important to me and you know somebody uh, was worried about it being a hit piece and I, I hope it doesn't come across that way because that wasn't you know wasn't my intention with any with anybody um, but I don't know. Yeah, people. The people aren't going to like it. I mean, and you know, I um. There's people I interviewed uh, for the book who cooperated and you know agreed to be interviewed and answered all my questions, but still just didn't really like that that the book was happening, but understood that they had you know become a part of a story that had you know national significance and national interest and has been written about in. The New York Times and Harper's, and been on CNN and Al Jazeera and Fox News, and so it's it's not a private story anymore. And um, you know, so I don't know. I I have I have mixed feelings about that because part of me feels strange about you know telling these telling these stories, but I, I was I was careful not to betray I think anyone's privacy with things that wasn't already out in the public sphere or you know, that they had, that they, you know, consented to have. So um, so I tried to do this whole thing honorably and people aren't going to like it because it's not the version of the story that they would tell personally, um, but I'd encourage them to tell their version of the story if, if that's what they want to do.
0: My guest today has been Summer Brennan. Her book is The Oyster War. Summer, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Thanks so much, Russ.